All right, open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we'll be going through verses 41 through 48 tonight. And this particular stanza is about our walk and our talk with God. Let's begin with verse 41, chapter uh, Psalm 119. And the psalmist says, Let your mercies come also to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So here we see the psalmist speak. This speaks of God's faithful love and mercy. God's love never fails. And love being one of God, being God's most wonderful, uh, one of his most attributes, a uh, wonderful attributes, and definitely an important place for the psalmist to start. Love is God's most wonderful attribute. And as we read and meditate upon the word of God, God speaks to us. And he speaks to us in love and in mercy. Even the warnings in the Bible come from his compassionate heart. Psalm 19, 11, verse, uh, the first part, verse 11a, it reads, Moreover by them, and it's speaking of God's word, it says, Your servant is warned. These warnings come from the compassionate heart of God because he, he doesn't want us to mess up. He wants to warn us about the pitfalls in life, about those things that will hurt us and, and, and could eventually ruin us, and especially, you know, uh, in eternal salvation. The word of God is the demonstration of the love of God to us. We read in Psalm 33, 11, For the Lord is good, His faithful love endures forever. His love endures forever. His, Lord's, his love towards us should result in love from our hearts to the Lord, to His people, and to the lost. As John said in 1 John four nineteen, We love Him because He first loved us. And we should just be passing on that love. And the psalmist also speaks about God's salvation, which stems from his love. We have the two words together in verse 41. God's love and his salvation. The word mercies speaks of his love. So again, in verse 41, we have God's mercies and we have God's salvation. Because the proof of God's love is his provision of salvation for sinners. Paul said in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means when many of us weren't looking for God, could care less about God, didn't want God, his son still died for us. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no, man, has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In John 3, 16, we have the entire gospel in one verse. God's love is not passive. God's love is not some theoretical love. It's not a self-centered love. God's love reaches out and it touches other people and it draws us in. And here God sets the pattern of true love. God's whole love that he gave. Notice loving, loving is giving. And he sets the example. The basis for all love relationships 
is his love and is love. When you love somebody dearly, you're willing to give freely even to the point of self-sacrifice. Now, I used to hear a long time ago, and it still is, that love is a 50-50 relationship. Not according to the Word of God. You already can see the problem. I'm giving 50%. The other person, we're only giving half. God says that our love is to be 100% and it has nothing to do with the other person. You know why? Because God says you are to love. It's a commandment of God. I am to do, I am to love like God loved in obedience to his word. And again, it has nothing to do with the, with, with the, 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 what the other person is like. Thank God he didn't love us with a 50-50 relationship. Thank God he loved me 100% regardless of my affection and attitude and my response toward him. See, that's the problem with the world's love. It's 50-50. You give your 50, I'll give my 50. I heard somebody say that love is giving of yourself, giving and giving until there's nothing left to give. God God paid dearly with the life of his son. God paid the highest price that he could pay. Jesus paid for our punishment. He paid the price for our sins. And then he offered us the new life that he had purchased for us. And when we share the gospel with others, our love must be like Christ's love. It must be willing to give up our own comfort, convenience, and security so that others might join us in receiving God's love. And it's out of God's great unfailing love that salvation comes. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that love never fails. And when it came to salvation, the only thing the Old Testament saints could know was just, they just had a basic idea of all that was involved. All all they were seeing in the Old Testament was shadows and types of what was to come in Jesus Christ. But we live after the cross. And we know how the love of God and the death of Christ came together. It's there in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We have God's love and we have Christ, his son. Paul put the two ideas together in Romans 5, 7 through 8. It says, now no one is likely to die for a good person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We've already learned that the psalmist is a sensible man when it comes to his religion. Here he doesn't dwell for a long time on God's love itself, but instead he mentions two important things that happen when you start to know God's love personally. When you start to know God's love personally, the first thing is that you will witness that love of God to other people. Look at verse 42. So shall I have an answer, notice, for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. I have an answer for him who reproaches me. In other words, when you begin to know the love of God, when you begin to to know God's love personally, you have a desire to talk about God. You want to talk about God to other people. You want to talk about his love to other people, especially to those who are opposed to him and to those who ridicule those who live for him. And that's what's being emphasized here. He goes on to say, then I will have an answer for him who reproaches me. That is, for those who mock me. And the world definitely mocks us. 
doesn't it? When it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. He says it all sounds foolish to them and they can't understand it. Why? It says because only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. When, when, when a man thinks he's wiser than God, he automatically tries to, to, to bring down the wisdom of God. Man tries to make God look foolish and the plan of salvation because, you see, the wisdom of God disagrees with the man's own thinking. Because for God to become a man, think about it again, back in the day when we weren't believers, for God to become a man and be crucified and then be resurrected in order to provide man's forgiveness of sin and then for him to get into heaven. I mean, it's an idea that's way too simple and foolish and humbling for the natural man to accept. To think that one man, the Son of God, could die on a piece of wood on some barren hill in an unexciting part of the world, and by doing so, would determine the destiny of every human being who has ever lived, it seems stupid to the man who is perishing. It's, it seems like nonsense. It seems like, what, what, a, what a tale to tell. And that's because it doesn't allow any room for man's goodness. It doesn't allow any room for man's accomplishments. Well, look what I've done. Look, I'm a good person. I should go to heaven. It doesn't allow any room for man's knowledge nor man's self-importance. See, because it's not about anything that man does. It's about everything that Jesus has done. And the message of the cross is foolishness to those people. It's the word Okay, the word foolishness. To those who are perishing, the word foolishness is is where we get our word moron. It means moronic. It's moronic to those who are perishing. It's total nonsense to unbelievers who depend upon their own wisdom to those who are perishing. And verse 42 is a clear description of those who reject Jesus Christ and who are in the process of being destroyed, spiritually speaking, in eternal judgment. The message of the cross includes the complete gospel message and work and God's plan and provision for man's salvation, for his redemption. And in its fullest sense, it's God's total revelation because his revelation centers in the cross. God's whole salvation story and his whole redemption process seems to be foolish to unbelievers. And because Christ's work on the cross is the high point of God's revealed word and his work, to reject the cross is to reject his salvation. And in the end, perish. In Malachi 3.14, the people complained that it was useless to serve God. They said, what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? Now, how can you answer that? And again, in the flesh. How can you compensate? And, and I remember thinking, thinking the same thing in the world. How could you compensate for giving up pleasure, esteem, and worldly comfort? 
The simple professor can't give an answer. He's heard of it. He's heard of salvation. But you see, it's, it's never come to him. It, he's never grasped it. But the believer, on the other hand, they're ready with an answer. I, here, here, here's how I <clears throat> give up or would think in the back of the Here's how I, I would give up pleasure and esteem and worldly comfort in salvation. I have the Lord's salvation and I have pardon and I have peace. Which is better than any pleasure, any esteem, any worldly comfort. I have a peace not like the world gives. I have a peace that the world can't take away from me. A peace that surpasses, Paul said, all human understanding. And this is why I abide in Christ. In the shadow of his cross. That's where I find my happiness. And I can tell you that there's no comfort like Christ's comfort. That's my answer for giving up this world's offerings. The shiny little trinkets that they offer. And that's why the psalmist said in verse 42, that's why I trust in your word. You see, faith makes our salvation in all of its fullness and all of its almighty power that because of our confidence in his word, it will make us, as Peter said, always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and God says, and their righteousness is from me. Look at verse 43. And he goes on to say, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for I have hoped in your ordinances. The psalmist humbly asks, that the word of truth, God's word, not be taken from him. Why? So that he might know how to witness when he gets the chance to do it for the glory of God. He says, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. He means, Lord, let the word of truth always be in my mouth. Let me have the, the wisdom and the courage that I need to help me use my knowledge to instruct other people. And to witness my faith whenever, whenever I'm called to do so. And we need to pray to God that we are never afraid or ashamed to tell others about the truth of God. About his truth. About his ways. Or to never deny him before men. The psalmist found that he was sometimes at a loss as to what to say. That the word of truth wasn't so ready for him or ready to him as it should have been. And so he prays, Lord, let your word not be totally taken from me. Let me always have just so much of it close by as needed to do what I'm called to do. This is the humble profession from, this, this, from the psalmist's upright heart. You see, here's the thing. Without an upright heart, without a clean, pure heart, you see, it doesn't matter how much of the word of God that we, we know. It won't help us if we don't have an upright heart. The psalmist admits his confidence is in God. Lord, make me ready and powerful in your word. 
Because my only hope is in your word. And if your words are not close by, then I don't have any support. I don't have any defense. Verse 44 through 45. He says, So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. The next thing here is the second thing is that what the second thing that happens to you when you begin to experience the knowledge of the personal knowledge of God is that you start to know God's love personally. One of the first things that happen when you come to know God as a God of love is obedience. And if people don't know this, it's because they have an inadequate and an even distorted idea of what love means. Many times we think of love, even, even as a believer, and, and I should speak in my own life. We think of love as a, a, as a syrupy sentimentality, a feeling that's to be enjoyed and wallowed in. But in the Bible, love is a relationship resulting in good works. Understand, love is an act of the will. It is something that you do more than you feel. And this is so important to understand, and especially in marriage. And this is something God had to teach me and Kathy, well, especially me, you know, when our marriage fell apart and we separated and almost ended in a divorce. Because you see, love to many people is, well, you know what? You love me and I'll love you. But if you don't love me, I, I, I can turn it off like, like a hot and cold water faucet. And that's what we usually do. And one of the biggest errors, and, and even in the Christian church, among Christians, is I've heard wives or husbands say, you know, I just lost that loving feeling as the song goes. I don't feel love for that person anymore. And they think because they've lost that loving feeling, they can't get it back. And so they'll wait for that feeling to come. It'll never come. It won't. The way it it comes back is by doing it in obedience to God's word. And that's that's how... My marriage was was transformed. It's when I began to love Kathy in spite of her feelings towards me or her behavior towards me when God brought us back together to work on our marriage because she still didn't want to come back. She still didn't want to work it out. And I thought, well, that's really motivating because she told me. God told me to come back and he told me to make this marriage work, but I don't want to be here. And I almost let it come out. You can imagine what I would have said. Probably what a lot of people would have said. Then get out of here. What are you doing here? And God said, shut up. Let her go. You work on yourself and let me work on your wife. And it took several months of just biting my tongue and shutting up and loving her in spite of Again, you know, and, it, and it, it, I'm not trying to put her in a bad light because I had a lot to do with where we were in that relationship. And it was very hard for her to do thinking that I'm just getting back into what I just left. 
But you see, God's will is more important to her than, than, than her own will. And see, that's the key. When your will, when, you, when God's will becomes more important to you than your will. And she began to do what God wanted her to do against her will. Love me. As hard as it was. And in several months, when it began to be transformed, and we got back together, and we began to go, I, I asked her, what changed your mind? She says, you were loving me in spite of me. And I got my feelings back. You see, God blesses obedience. And you will never, you'll never experience the power of God and the Word of God without obedience. And, and it's something that we need to grab. We need to trust God at his word when he says, do it and I'll show you. No, you got hit. What's that? No, show me, Lord, then I'll do it. It doesn't work that way. We walk by faith, not by sight, not by feelings. So again, love is not a syrupy mentality, a sentimentality. It's not a feeling that, 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 I'm, that I need to have before I live, to love somebody. The Bible, love in the Bible is a love relationship that results in good works. Love is an act of the will. It's something you do more than feel. Jesus taught his disciples in John 14, 15. He said, if you, if you love me, keep my commandments. The word keep is the word obey. That's the litmus, litmus test for, for knowing if you love God. Do you, do you love God enough to do what he tells you to do? And that's why I, t- I tell a lot of married couples when, when I've done marriage counseling. God wants you to love your husband. God wants you to love your wife because he says so. Now, here's your choice. Do you love God enough to do what he tells you to do in spite of what you want to do? Because that's the only way this is going to change. There's no magic pill I can give you, no magic potion, nothing that I can do to make you Change what's going on here. It's all up to you. And understand, God's word does not command you to feel like loving. God's word directs you to think and to speak and to act in a loving manner. The psalmist's commitment to keep God's law was forever and ever. It's a good way of saying his obedience is going to go on continually. There will never be a time, he says, when the godly people, when godly people stop obeying God. Now notice how he's decided to keep God's law. In verse 44, he said continually. Notice, so shall I keep your law continually. He's not taking it lightly. God has to be served in a constant behavior of obedience every day and all day till the day we die. Verse 44, he says, notice, forever and ever. That's a long time. That means I'm going to love God in a constant behavior, in obedience every day, all day, every day, without backsliding, and we must never get tired of doing good. As Paul said, do not grow weary in doing good. If we serve Jesus Christ to the end of our life on earth, we will be serving him in heaven to the endless ages of eternity. So we will keep his law forever and ever. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 23, but he who endures to the end will be saved. It's enduring to the end. It's not how good we start. It's not how fast we get out of the starting blocks. Do I make it to the finish line? Look at verses 46 through 48. 
I will speak of your testimonies also before kings, and I will not be ashamed, and I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Now we can see in these verses, our lives speak for the Lord. And here's where it talks about our walk and our talk. Our, our, our lives speak for the Lord if our walk matches our talk. The best defense of the faith is a transformed life that, 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 that's compassionate towards other people. Our obedience to the Lord and our loving ministry to others demonstrates the reality of our faith more than anything else. Because we know and obey the truth, the, the word of truth. Because we do, we're able to enjoy the freedom from the bondage of sin because it's the truth that sets us free, Jesus said. Notice what the, the psalmist experienced by having love for the law of God. He says in verse 45, I seek your precepts. I want to know and I want to do my duty and I want to consult your word for that reason. I do all that I can to understand what your will is, God, and to find out the inner thoughts of your mind, Lord. He said in verse 45, I seek your, your, your precepts, Lord. Why? Because I love them. That's what he says in verses 47 and 48. He says, I not only agree that they're good, but I take satisfaction in them, in them that they're good for me. And all who love God and all who love his authority, and because they do, they love all his commandments. Next, what he expected from this, five things he promises himself in the strength of God's grace. Number one, that he should be free and peaceful in his duty. Again, notice verse 45, I will walk at liberty. I'll walk in freedom. Freedom from what's evil. I won't be slowed down by bondage to, to, to my own wickedness and I'll be free to do what's good, not doing good. Because I have to, but I'm doing good willingly and because I want to do good. Man, serving sin is, serving sin is perfect slavery. Serving God is perfect freedom. Self-indulgence in, is bondage. Feeding this flesh, feeding the, the, these, these evil and corrupt desires of our flesh, that's bondage. Why? We, we go looking all the time to fill those cravings, to fill those desires. And you know what? They're empty. They're never satisfied. That's why we're always looking and experiencing different things, whether it's, it's, it's relationships or drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be. Because I'm walking in bondage. I'm walking in slavery. I'm slowed down by my own wickedness. And I'm not free to do what's good. And I'm not doing good because I have to. Or I'm not doing good because I don't want to, but, but I'm in bondage to slavery. Self-indulgence is bondage to the, to the greatest oppressor in life. And that is self. I'm in bondage to me when I'm, in, when I'm apart from Christ. Uprightness is freedom for even the lowest prisoner who's enslaved by sin and jesus said and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free jesus frees us from the consequences of sin he frees us from self-deception and from deception by satan god clearly shows us the way to everlasting life jesus 
You know, Jesus doesn't give us freedom so that we can do what we want to do. He gives us freedom so we can follow him and do what he wants us to do. Because sin draws us away from God. And as we seek to serve God, Jesus' perfect truth frees us to be all that God meant for us to be and wants us to be. And therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, without any obstruction, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Secondly, that he should be bold and courageous in his duty. Look at verse 46. He says, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings. Now to the psalmist, kings were sometimes his judges. But you see, if he was called before them, to give a reason of the hope that he had in God, in Christ. He'd speak of God's testimonies. And he would acknowledge, I am building my hope on the word of God. And, and I am taking his counsel. I'm making them his counsel, my protection, my security. It's all to me. Man, we must never be afraid to stand up and defend our Christian beliefs even if it's in danger of kings. You know, in our time of leaders and, 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 and governments or other authorities. Even if it may mean, you know, that, 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 that you know, we live or die. Remember Daniel's three friends who stood up before King Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said to the king in Daniel three sixteen through 18, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, if God chooses not to deliver us, if God chooses not to give us favor, let it be known to you, king, we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Daniel's three friends were pressured to deny God, just as the world is pressuring you tonight to deny God. But they chose to stay faithful to God no matter what happened to them even if they burned up in the fiery furnace. They trusted God to deliver them, but they were determined to be faithful to God even if God didn't deliver them. Think of it, if God always rescued those who were true to him and it was just an automatic thing, you wouldn't need faith. Our, our, you know, our, our religion would be a great insurance policy. Oh yeah, I'm going you know, to be a Christian because you know, hey, God's going to, Never have me allow me to have any problems. And there would be a long line of selfish people ready to sign up just because it's guaranteed, not because I love God and trust Him. We should be faithful to serve God whether He intervenes for us or not. And our eternally, eternity, our reward is worth, our eternal reward is worth any suffering that we may have to go through first. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, 
which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, Paul is comparing what we go through here on this earth, just a light affliction and and, and momentary compared to all eternity. In Acts 4, 18 and 20, it says, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Sometimes these kings that the psalmist is talking about here, they were friends of, the, of his. And they visited him. And he returned their visits. But the psalmist did not worry about upsetting them. He, didn't, he wasn't worried about displeasing them or offending them or making them uncomfortable. He talked about his God no matter what. God's testimonies. He's saying God's testimonies will be the main topic of my conversation with the kings. Not only to show that he wasn't ashamed of his religion, but to teach them about his religion and to bring them to it. And we, we, again, in, in uh, Acts chapter 24, verse 5 through 9 and 14 through 16, listen to Paul when he stood before the government. When he was arrested for preaching the gospel, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. I'm sorry. Now, let me get back here to here we go. He said, for we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. These are the charges being brought against Paul. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were true. But listen, now here's Paul. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which is what they call Christianity back in the time, they called it the way. He says, which they call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Paul's life was on the line. But he confessed about his God and salvation and the resurrection of the dead. I mean, he gave him the gospel. Because he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Paul was not ashamed because of his message of the gospel of Christ. Hey, it was the good news. It was a message of salvation. It has life-changing power. and And it was for everybody who wanted it. When you're, when you're tempted to be ashamed, remember what the good news is all about. And if you focus on God and what He's doing in the world rather than on your own failures, you won't be ashamed or embarrassed. Third, that He should be cheerful and pleasant in His duty. Look at verse 47. I will delight myself in your commandments. 
I will delight myself in your commandments in talking about them and conforming to them, bringing my life into conformity to your word, Lord. Man, does it give you joy to read God's word? Are you excited? Look forward to reading God's word. Do you love the Bible? If you don't love God's word, ask him to give you love for it. Because think about it. It's really a great contradiction of our faith to say, oh, I love the Lord. But then I don't get excited or love his word. I will never be happier than when I do what is pleasing to God. The more that we love the word of God, desire the word of God, delight the word of God, the more we delight, the more delight we have in in serving God, the nearer we come to the, to the perfection that, that we're, we're striving for. Fourth thing that he said, he should be diligent and vigorous in his duty. In verse 48, he says, I will lift up my hands to your commandments. This symbolizes not just a, a passionate desire towards the word of God, but, but when he says, I will lift up my hands to your commandment, that symbolizes not just a, a passionate desire, again, about his word of God, it symbolizes a strong, willing mind to do them. He's saying here that I will grab hold of your word like somebody who's afraid of them getting away. I'm going to hold on to them to dear life. I will lay my hands on your commandments, not only to praise them, God, but to do them, to practice them. I will lift my hands up to it. And that is, I will put forth all the strength that I have to do your command. And fifth, he said that he should be thoughtful and considerate in his duty. Verse 48, I will meditate on your statutes. He says, I'm not just going uh, uh, to entertain myself uh, uh, by thinking of, uh, of your word as topics of discussion when I'm around people. I'm not going to think about your word as, as a topic of idle chit-chat when I'm with my friends. But he says, I plan on how I might abide in your word the best way that I can. That's what it means to meditate upon the word of God. I'm going to meditate upon it. I am going to think on the best way that I can and how I can live by your word. This it will appear. By this it will appear that we truly love God's commandments. If we apply both our minds and our hands to them. I want to close with this verse. In Genesis 27, verse 22, it says, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And you're probably familiar with one of the probably most well-known stories of Esau and Jacob. The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Remember, Isaac wanted to bless Esau with a covenant blessing. But Jacob's, uh, Jacob, Esau's twin brother, wanted the covenant blessing too with his mother's help. They schemed to get it by disguising himself as Esau. Now, part of the disguise was to put hair on his hands and on his arms so that when Isaac, his father who was nearly blind, felt Jacob... It would feel like Esau because Esau was a hairy man. The disguise worked because, you see, when Isaac felt Jacob's hands and arms, they felt like Esau's hands and arms. And so Isaac gave Jacob the blessing. But the disguise 
wasn't fully complete. Because when Jacob spoke, Isaac said, hmm, it feels like, like, like Esau, but it sounds like Jacob. And as a result, Isaac wasn't sure about what was going on. He said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. The inconsistency of Jacob's hands and voice shows the problem of hypocrisy. It illustrates the problem of one's talk represented in Jacob's voice, not matching one's deeds, his hands. The lesson here is the need of consistency in our Christian life. Let our talk be seen in our walk. Let our lips and our life match. Let what we say and what we do match. May what we say and what we do both be holy. And may the world not see a double standard in our lives. Saying one thing and doing another. Make sure your profession of faith is real and not just a show, not just a disguise. Father, thank you so much for this portion of Psalm 119, Father. And Lord, just help us as always, Lord, to glean from this passage, Lord, all that there is in it. Father, your word is so It's so amazing, God. There's so much that we can learn and and grow by. And as the psalmist said, he he didn't want to know God's word and meditate upon it just so that it would be a topic of discussion when he gets around his friends. But may we meditate upon the word of God and know the word of God on how best to do it. And maybe you're here tonight and and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. But through God's word and his spirit, he's pricked your heart. And the spirit has, has spoken to your heart. And you recognize, you realize, I need Christ. I want Christ. I, I want to know the Savior and I want to know the Word, the living Word of God. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you want to make that move tonight, you want to make Christ your Savior, your Lord, then while we worship, you get up out of your seat You make your way down the aisle towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith.